0: Well, on that randomly bizarre note, as our first provincial presser, I suppose, or as our second Canada presser, complicatedness, I suppose we're just going to have technical difficulties as it seems that my voiceover is not functioning the way that it should. So apparently, I will attempt to do it live. We'll see what happens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Pop AB's COVID-19 Briefing for Thursday, January 20th, 2022. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 Briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. Today's conversation looks beyond Alberta and explores the question, how does Canada as a whole work through the current COVID-19 crisis from coast to coast to coast? With experts from across the nation, we are hoping to cultivate a dialogue that will serve Canadians regardless of your postal code. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territories of many people. Within a cross-Canada digital landscape, we wish to take time to acknowledge all the Inuit, Métis and First Nations people that call this land home. Please take this moment to reflect on your relationship with the people and the lands on which you are currently situated. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Canadians attempting to ensure that everyone in the country has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 as possible and the nationwide impact of regional policies. Today's conversation is only being shared in English. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning and ASL will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This national conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are hoping to create a French language translation as well, but if you are interested in regular French language updates, please tune in to our sister broadcasts through POP Quebec. Details can be found at www.popqc.ca. In addition to a brief COVID-19 update for Canada, we will focus today on exploring a path forward for the entire nation. From wherever you are joining us, thank you. I would like to welcome back Dr. Fisman to give a brief overview of the COVID-19 situation in Canada. We will follow that up with the roundtable introductions of our visiting panelists and some additional presentations. Dr. Fisman is a physician epidemiologist and sometime infectious disease modeler who is interested in using models and data to protect Canadians during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Welcome back, Dr. Fisman. There was a lot of talking for me off the top that wasn't pre recorded. Thank you so very much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me back on. It's it's really an honor, and um, I enjoyed being 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 on this webcast last time. And uh, uh, I'm, the 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 company today is 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 uh, is impressive. Um, so so glad to be part of this. Without further ado, I, I wanted to show a few pictures. I think you're going to show those. So this is. <laughs> This is just a little simple model that I I make and maintain of COVID globally, just just to give you a picture of, of, of where we're at in the world. The dots are, are actual global case counts, and uh, um, those are those are um, those are sort of a running average. I think a five day running average. Um, and what you can see is uh, this model has been going since 2020. It starts out in in um, the spring of, of of 2020, and we've been through a few major global waves um, uh, over the last two years. And now we're into this crazy, weird, um, uh, my friend David Patrick referred to this as a steeple. The steeple on the cathedral has been this worldwide wave um, over the last couple of months of Omicron, a new variant that's, that's very infectious but also seems to be a little bit of an immune escape mutant. And so that's what we're coming through. The model, what, what you can see is that the, the, the cases, those dots are overshooting the model, but the model is optimistic and says, well, we're about to turn and go back down. So this should be a short wave in duration, but it's been very, very large in terms of the number of people infected. Next slide, please. And you can see here how it's played out in Canada. In Canada. Sorry, this is a bit small, but over on the left, Those are cumulative epidemic curves for the different provinces, orange is is Ontario, uh, purple is Quebec, uh, light blue is Alberta, dark blue is BC, the yellow and green intertwined are uh, Saskatchewan and and, uh, uh, Manitoba. And, uh, and then down at the bottom you have the Northern Territories as well as the Atlantic provinces, which really have had very few cases relative to the rest of the country. And you can see that, you know, we've been through a few different, uh, different waves. And then this last one has basically been vertical. and It's now starting to, to turn. Um, we, we do some very simple forecast modeling and that's over on the right. That's from yesterday, looking at the, this Canadian wave. Now, um, caveat emptor, because testing has changed throughout the country, uh, so, so there's a lot of uncertainty with this analysis. But the best guesstimate we have is that this this wave, in terms of cases, is probably going to be ending by by early February. Um, we, again, with caveats, and in Ontario, we've just reopened schools, and that may juice juice this a little bit again. But um, even if it does, we'll be looking at, at things ending. Uh, with this wave in in in, in mid February or, or or late February at the latest, I think. Next slide, please. And there's been a lot of talk about how mild the <laughs> Omicron variant is, and indeed, uh, this is some work uh, from from some collaborators and students. Uh, when we look using uh, comparing Omicron to um, the original non-variant of concern COVID strain, and we adjust for things like vaccination and age and um, medical comorbidities and so forth. What we find is that in fact, the Omicron variant, this is looking at hospitalization hazard ratio is, how likely are you to get hospitalized relative to the original COVID? And what we find is that with Omicron people, even after we adjust for vaccination, they're about 40% less likely to wind up in the hospital. And that's great. Uh, in contrast, delta is about three and a half times more likely than the original COVID variant to put you in hospital and even more likely than uh, the N501Y strains like, like alpha, beta, gamma. The problem with that framing, that it's mild, is that if we have 20 or 30 or 40 times the number of infections. It doesn't really matter if we have a forty percent reduced risk of hospitalization per case, because that gets overwhelmed very quickly. Next slide, and we see that in Ontario. This isn't my data. This is Ontario uh, Hospital Association data, looking at what's happened uh, to ICU occupancy in Ontario over the last about three weeks. And it had started off. We'd had this vertical rise. It looks like things are finally starting to flatten out. But again, we're we're now because things are starting to flatten out a bit, we're looking at um, kind of uh, moving to more capacity and in uh, um, in terms of, you know, indoor settings like gyms and restaurants and getting schools open again. So we may juice this again. We probably have about a thousand beds available for COVID um, in, in Ontario ICUs in terms of funded beds. That doesn't mean we have healthcare staff. So we're, we're already, we've already eaten through 60% of those as we now, uh, um, do some reopening. Next slide, please. Now, something that's really important, and it's easy to throw up your hands and say, well, it's the never-ending pandemic and there's nothing we can do about that. It's not so, this is a bit of a busy slide because I've sort of pulled together data from all over the place. I'll direct you to the right-hand side of the slide where the top panel's Ontario science table, and they are doing a running calculation of vaccine efficacy. And what you can see in Ontario is that purple line is the ability of vaccines to prevent people from getting infected in the first place. And that took a hit with Omicron went down. And now that people are getting boosters, it's on its way up because actually a full, uh, um, uh, a full series of COVID vaccine, which is a three dose series, actually does protect you against infection with Omicron. But what you can see at the top is efficacy against going to hospital and going to the ICU or the yellow and orange curves. And those have never dropped off that much. And you can see they're starting to rebound now too. So in terms of, you know, this being <laughs> relatively mild variant, and you can also make it much milder by, by getting your vaccine, the bottom panel here, which is, is pretty small, is from the US CDC, um, the, 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 the covid.cdc.gov uh, website that is showing the incidence of, I believe that's, that's COVID death in um, unvaccinated people is the black line. And then the the light blue and dark blue lines are partially vaccinated and fully vaccinated. And, you know, in the U.S., you've got a 20 times greater likelihood of dying that's continued through with Omicron if you're unvaccinated relative to vaccinated. And then over on the left-hand side of this panel, this bar graph, those pink and and blue bars, um, uh, sorry, those pink and... Um, yeah, those pink uh, pink bars are showing the likelihood of having prolonged symptoms in people who have two plus doses of COVID vaccine relative to people who never got infection in the first place. So that's the blue bars. And what you can see is that the the risk of prolonged symptoms after COVID, this is sort of the so-called long COVID, in the purple and gray bars, those are unvaccinated and single vaccinated people are much higher than what people have if they're if they've never been infected in the blue bars. And those those pink bars show you that getting double vaccinated in this Israeli study actually puts you right back to uh, as if you'd never been infected in the first place. So so we're starting to see that even though vaccines, we had this 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 this. Um, uh, a, a period where vaccines became less effective at preventing infection, when people are vaccinated, they're much, much less likely to get severely ill, and they're much less likely to have long COVID. Last slide, please. So <laughs> I actually have some data on, on uh, that, 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 that we've been looking at on virulence in kids. We had, um, it's not my data, it belongs to some collaborators, and we actually had a bit of a shot across the bows from the Ontario science table last week about, Sharing that publicly, so I won't share it publicly. Um, but I can, you know, refer you. I, I think I can describe what's happened in Ontario, which is, to me, quite alarming. Um, we are up at about fifty hospital admissions a week now, um, in kids under ten, um, and and we've never had that all pandemic. It's a very different situation. There are about fifteen hospitalizations a week in older kids. That's ten to ten to nineteen year olds. Um, um, in, in the kids who are under uh, a, a 10, about 60% of the admissions are in kids who are actually under the age of five. And that's probably a confluence of two things. And this is CHEO, uh, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, talking about that today in a tweet, how crazy this has been uh, for them in terms of clinical service provision. Um, and, and, and that's probably a combination of a couple of things. The one thing is daycares have been open even as schools have been closed in Ontario. Another thing is that, of course, once we get under five, kids over five um, are able to get vaccinated. About half of them are in Ontario. And we know that getting double vaccinated for little kids prevents them from getting severe sequelae of COVID, like um, even single vaccinated, like uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome. So vaccines are protecting uh, about half of those older kids. Um, but the third thing with younger kids is uh, Omicron seems to be more of an upper airway infection than a lower airway infection. So now we're down into the age groups that get croup. And it really does look as though uh, at least some fraction of those hospitalizations are, are are from little kids who have really bad upper airway infections that are causing breathing difficulties. So, so, so this is obviously not a situation uh, anyone wants to see. We do not have Uh, vaccine options for kids under five so you know the only way to protect them is to protect the population as a whole and slow down disease transmission so that's sort of my my whirlwind (laughs) overview of what's happening with COVID in canada as as far as i can see right now
0: thank you very much for this whirlwind of what's happening in canada as far as you can see right now i think this question is going to come up again during the panel but before i bring on our next guest since we just touched on it from your understanding, where are we at with vaccine approval in tiny humans under five? Well,
1: I, I, I'm aware of some recent trials that were not successful. So I, I don't know of anything that's on the horizon. I, I know that um, that there were some low dose uh, uh, approaches to vaccines in young kids, and those don't seem to have worked. And um, y- you know, what we see with things like influenza, is we actually need to use what are called adjuvanted vaccines. Those are vaccines with extra stuff in them that makes really revs up the immune system at the extremes of age. So we use them in people who are you know 65 and over, and we also use them in very small children uh, because when you're very young and when you're very old, your immune system's a bit less responsive. Your 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 immune system kind of peaks at uh, at age 15, 16, something like that. We did a study a number of years ago when we were looking at vaccine efficacy and age, and our cutoff in that study was a meta-analysis between young and old, was once people are over 30, they're old from the point of view of vaccine response, and you really see see effects. So, so after we're 16 or so, our, our, our immune systems do seem to start aging, and by the time people are over 30, it's, it's manifest. We talk about that as immune senescence, and we really see that coming to the fore when people are in their 60s and 70s, vaccines just don't work as well as they used to. So, you know, those extremes of age it's sort of the mirror image.
0: Our next um, guest today, I'm really excited about. And our next guest also has a pediatrics background. So I think that I will probably start that exact same question to know if they have heard anything else about tiny humans under five, um, as well as invite them up to have a uh, to share a statement with us before I bring in all of our other panelists. So Dr. Fisman, I'm going to move you towards the background for a moment and I'm going to bring you back up so we can keep this conversation going shortly. I am thrilled today that for our briefing, we have Dr. Catherine Smart, the President of the Canadian Medical Association, a passionate advocate. Dr. Smart has worked in pediatrics for over 20 years, moving to Whitehorse a few years ago to implement a new collaborative model of pediatric care to serve marginalized children. These days, you can see her advocate on behalf of the profession and the patients for the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thank you so very much for being here today.
2: Thank you so much, Michelle. I really appreciate the opportunity, and it's wonderful to be here with so many esteemed colleagues and just be able to share our thoughts and observations. Um, you know, I, I'll just start by by saying I, I certainly don't think any of us hoped we'd be where we are now at this stage in the pandemic. Um, and Omicron, I think, has has been incredibly stressful for Canadians, for healthcare professionals, for our health system. Um, and you know, we just remain really grateful to groups like yours that are trying to encourage spreading accurate and timely information to the public and just all the Canadians who are trying to do their best uh, to keep the healthcare system going forward. Um, I just wanted to, to weigh in a bit on a few of our thoughts at the CMA uh, regarding where we're at in the pandemic and, and sort of some of the things we think are critical on moving forward. You know, we're, we're of of course, remain extremely concerned about the ongoing impact of the pandemic on the health system as a whole. And and of course, that also means individual Canadians. But the impact on the system has, of course, been substantial. And again, we find ourselves with hospitals hospitals being overwhelmed, as as Dr. Fishman pointed out. And again, we're counseling. a lot of very important procedures uh, for Canadians as we continue to divert our resources to COVID-19. And I think sometimes it can feel a bit hopeless, um, but I also think there's a lot we still can do. And I wanted to, to sort of touch on some of those things. I think we heard a lot already today about the importance of vaccination and we really believe we do not want to lose sight of this. Um, It's very clear that this is a three dose vaccine, particularly for adults, and that three doses are highly protective against severe disease. Um, And this is critical both, of course, for ensuring good outcomes for individuals, but also in terms of protecting the health system which continues to be disproportionately impacted by people who remain unvaccinated, who then of course are at much higher risk of severe outcomes. So we really believe we need to continue the work in combating misinformation or vaccination, understanding what some of the structural barriers are to why people maybe haven't been vaccinated um, and to continue to work on that doctor patient level, a healthcare professional patient level to really help people understand the importance of this health choice. I think also right now really critical that we continue to work around vaccine hesitancy with parents you know as we heard only about 50 percent of kids 5 to 11 are vaccinated and COVID right now is the the severe COVID and significant outcomes from COVID are vaccine preventable largely now in children five and up and I think that communication is really important for parents so that they understand there is that's a step they can take to protect their children And we need to make sure we really keep working hard to get that message out there and make vaccines accessible for kids. And certainly as we head back into schools, it's really critical that we increase that vaccination rate. So I think vaccination for us is just a huge priority. And I really appreciate people sharing the data on just how important that is. Another challenge, of course, we're facing right now is testing. And we think it's critical that we stabilize our testing capacity and ensure that PCR testing is available for people with medical vulnerabilities, particularly now that we're starting to see some potential treatment options for people that even though whether they're unvaccinated or fully vaccinated may be at higher risk of poor outcomes. And so much of those treatments is dependent on having a timely diagnosis of COVID to be able to access those treatments in a timeline that allow them to be effective. So it's really important that our governments focus on stabilizing testing capacity um, and making sure that people that need that are able to access it. Um, Of course, schools are top of mind right now, um, and we've seen very different plans across the country in, in terms of trying to increase safety in schools. And I know this is something many parents are concerned about, as are we in healthcare. Um, and I think we need to continue that focus on what are things that we can do to make schools as safe as possible. Um, I've I've sort of said my own view on this is I don't think the right conversation is are schools safe or unsafe. Schools can be on a continuum of safety and there's many things we can do to make them as safe as possible. Uh, we're never going to have zero risk, but we don't need to be tolerating levels of risks that are higher than they need to be so we need to be focused on good air quality and ventilation this again is investments that will protect children not only from covid but from many other diseases as we move forward through this pandemic we've learned a lot about masking and we need to continue to apply that in the school setting making sure kids and teachers are vaccinated these are all things that are within our wheelhouse that we can do to keep our schools open and keep our kids safe and learning Improved communication is another priority for us and I think this is what's so great about organizations like yours that are trying to get good information out there. We've seen how challenging it is in our federated model with many different health systems and many different governments communicating to the public really very different messaging around COVID and how confusing that's been we feel it's really important that we try as much as we can to align around our messaging and strategies so that we can feel we're moving forward collectively well informed rather than people looking or the province on either side of them and wondering why is it different where i live and i think this is an ongoing challenge that we need to continue to address we need to also think of the future you know we're not through this yet i think if we've learned anything from COVID, it's you know right when we sort of think we've maybe won or it's getting better, something changes like a new variant, as we've seen with Omicron. So we need to continue to invest in our public health structures. We need to be prepared for a new variant. And I think we need to really be much more serious and proactive around global vaccine equity. Something I think we've all heard a lot about, but Canada really does need to make good on its promises in that regard. As I think it's very clear that no one's safe until we're all safe, and the best tool we have for that is vaccination. So that's another uh, area that for us is very important, and that we've been wanting to to bring forward, um, and that we continue to advocate with the federal government in that regard. So those are just some of my initial thoughts about where we find ourselves. Um, I'm happy, Michelle, to to provide a bit more information about vaccination in younger children. If you want me to do that now, um, but very much looking forward to the conversation tonight and learning from everyone else on the panel.
0: Why don't I bring everybody up that way we can do a round of introductions as I know vaccines in under fives as well as increasing vaccination in our 5 to 17, 18 year old population, particularly 5 to 11s um, across the country was on the list of questions people had sent in. And so we might as well dive in and get to know the rest of our team. Thank you again so very much, Dr. Smart, for making the time to be with us today today. it is definitely one of those absolutely fascinating moments in history where all eyes are on the community that you serve and that you represent. And I have am just so thankful to get to have this time with you today and so appreciative of all of the work that the CMA has been doing to advocate for the community that you serve. Thank you so very much. I am thrilled to welcome an affiliate. I'm going to bring Dr. Fisman back up because we did his introduction, so then we can have some more friends on screen. I love it. I love it. I am thrilled to get to bring in um, one of our neighboring affiliates, um, Dr. Lynn Filiatro, a retired emergency physician and member of the Protect Our Province BC team, first time on the national Uh, well, part two of the national. Um, Lynn spent most of her career um, in the emergency department in Vancouver, um, where she also served as the emergency department quality improvement director. Thank you so very much, Lynn, for Dr. Filiasho, for joining us. Our next panelist with us today, as I am trying to master many screens at the exact same time, but I am very excited about it, um, is Dr. Noel Gibney, professor emeritus, Department of Critical Care Medicine, Faculty of Medicine and Dentistry from the University of Alberta. head of the Department of Critical Care Medicine at Alberta Health Services Edmonton Zone from 1995 to 2001, as well as another one of our sister affiliate organization, Neighbors, um, Dr. Anne Barra, palliative care and family physician from Montreal, associate clinical professor of the Department of Family of Medicine and Emergency Medicine at the University Université de Montreal. My French is not strong. Um, one of the things that in addition to being an amazing physician, Anne is able to offer a very unique perspective. Um, Up until December of 2020 had been a human who was in exceptionally good health, very active, um, and contracted COVID at a large outbreak at work. Um, She was not hospitalized, but she has continued to suffer um, with debilitating long COVID, including Vocal cord, I'm gonna say this wrong. Sequela? Is that how you pronounce it? Medical humans. It's I'm sequelate. Sequela. Thank close. you, Anne. Thank you, thank you. Um, for over a year, which has prompted her to become a very active, vibrant advocate um, for not buying into the fatalistic view of everyone should catch COVID and why it is so important to make sure that you keep yourself as safe as you can. Um, I am so thrilled to have all of you here with us today. Thank you. So for this little portion I'm just going to throw out some questions and then we'll move on to a couple more presentations. Um, Feel free to Just share your thoughts whenever they occur. Um, It's a conversation. So everybody is, please contribute. Um, The first question that I would like to ask, we've talked a lot about the sort of different impact on the healthcare system with this wave versus our previous waves in terms of it currently being more central around acute care versus ICU care. What else is unique about this wave and where we are right now, versus where most of the country found itself in the fall?
3: I can start. Um, I'm old enough to remember the anthrax scare years ago. If you remember the white powder in the letters that people were receiving in the States, and I think we even had some here. And at the time I took a, a chemical biological warfare course. And the only thing I can remember of that was that the best weapon doesn't have to be the most lethal or mortal weapon, but it has to be the one that handicapped all your population at the same time. And this is what we're seeing with Omicron. So it's not a severe quote unquote, and again, I'm putting quote unquote, because I beg to differ in different perspective. But the problem that we're being faced is it's attacking or affecting every branches of our uh, population. And the difficulty that we're gonna find ourselves in, and that's for the people in BC, because I can relate is when we had the Delta wave um, back in the fall, um, what ended up happening is there was a lot of transfers from the North. So health areas or health authorities that had less capacity. Um, transferred, I can't remember the number, but it was a big number in a thousand. I think of uh, uh, critical care patients, and that, and they were able to do that because at the same time, Lower Mainland, so uh, Vancouver, uh, Vancouver Island, weren't being affected at the same time. So we had some slack in the system. And what's going to happen with Omicron? as we see is that all the health authorities are being hit at the same time. So there's not gonna be this ability to help if one health authority or one region of the province is not doing well. And this has already played out in the states, in the Delta wave, where we saw the rural areas being impacted. And then the emergency departments having to make 20, 23 calls to find a critical care bed, And that was often two or three states over. So that's going to be something that is going to be very challenging for us. Even though we know that the absolute length of time for people affected with Omicron that are hospitalized is going to be shorter, it's the sheer volume is, and the fact that it's happening all at the same time is going to have a huge impact on the healthcare system. Plus, as Dr. Smart, I'm sure will allude to, is healthcare workers are tired. And they're getting sick themselves. We open schools and what we're finding out is the healthcare workers that have kids are now getting infected from their kids. So it's this big, chaotic, complex mixing with no area spared. And the things that are in our favor are linear, but the case growth is logarithmic. And that's where the trouble we find ourselves in. So I'll stop there.
2: Yeah, just really echoing what you're saying, I think it's a really great way to describe it. And and I think it's so true that just the impact in terms of the number of healthcare professionals themselves who are dealing with COVID right now or exposures, meaning they're not able to work is at a completely different level than what we've seen in other waves. You know, there's hospitals with up to 20% of their healthcare staff not able to work. Um, and that that's huge. And again, it, it relates to what Dr. Fisman was saying at the beginning, you know, there's Funded beds and then there's staffed beds, and that's a huge issue as well. We've seen attrition, uh, especially amongst nursing, who's been worked so hard during this pandemic. So that that's a challenge um, that we're dealing with. And as you said, you know, we've seen that flexibility within provinces, but we've also seen some interprovincial transport have to happen during the pandemic. And again, you know, is there going to be the capacity for that right now? You know, I live in the Yukon, we have to transfer out all of our really critically ill patients with COVID down south because we don't have the same type of critical care capacity, you know, so you wonder, will we be able to keep doing that paramedics, they're also impacted our medivac crews, you know, do you have a team available. Um, And I can tell you from personal experience, sometimes we're waiting 24 to 36 hours to be able to move patients from the north, south, and I imagine that's only going to get worse as we dive into this. So. I think it's very true, just the the staffing issues, the human health resource crisis we're in, the pandemic of exhaustion, burnout, moral injury amongst healthcare workers, all of this is ongoing and only worse right now in, in this phase of where we find ourselves. The other thing I would just say is I think we also, it's very clear that many Canadians have not been able to access other care for other diseases, non COVID related throughout the pandemic. And we're starting to see that build as well and the implications of that. And those patients also um, having worsening outcomes because they continue to have their care delayed. And the longer we get into this pandemic, I think just the more we're going to see those things presenting in our acute care system. So that that's an, another concern.
4: Another thing. I might add is over what you were talking about, which is obvious that with the monstrous numbers with Omicron, the fact that I see still now so many people not understanding the transmission, airborne nature of transmission, even colleagues in hospital taking off their N95 to sip water in the middle of units, or people still thinking in the recent survey that the best thing to prevent COVID is to wash hands. Still, after two years, I think this is an area where there's really a lot of work to be done because I really feel that understanding how you can catch it will help a lot of people understanding what they can do to lessen their chances to catch it. And what Mm -hmm. could maybe forgive before with Delta, with all the other variants, is not forgiving anymore. With Omicrons, we really have to step up on a COVID is airborne education.
5: I think the, the other component that I think is really important at the moment is that our leaders in terms of politicians don't let up what relatively minor restrictions we have at the moment too soon. Because as we see it's happening in Ontario as a, the end of January, what restrictions exist will will cease. And I suspect that even though in Alberta, our premier is on today announcing uh, COVID uh, response centers in in various places to to create extra beds, I suspect that Alberta will be following pretty soon after Ontario. And again, that, that will give extra life potentially to Omicron. Instead of coming down nice and smoothly off that steeple, as David said, we we'll probably get another set of bumps, uh, which we don't need to get.
1: So, uh, yeah. so Definitely I agree with all of you, with everything that's been said.
4: And the health with- system will have.
0: Oh, we seem to have temporarily lost Dr. Barra. I suspect that She will reappear momentarily. Um, With that being said, as we do speed through this sort of initial Omicron, presuming that we follow those sort of more global um, trajectories where we have that really, really sharp incline and then do get to see down, although down is half the cases. I always feel like it's important to point that out. How much Delta is still a problem in Canada? And are we worried about anything else that is known at this point?
3: I think. um, Oh, sorry. So, in BC, we um, so we had a bigger Delta wave because, along with Alberta and Saskatchewan, we were uh, part of the three provinces that suggested that vaccine was enough to get us over this pandemic, and essentially we ended up with a massive Delta wave that contributed to the exhaustion and and also the less resilient healthcare system that we have. So right now we still have, uh, and it's hard to get the the numbers, how many uh, patients that have been impacted by Delta that are still in the hospital, they haven't been able to be uh, discharged. And it's particularly uh, more important with the regions that have been impacted the most. So for us, it would be the North, but Omicron is, is so, um, uh, agile, it's going to displace, and it, if it hasn't for most of the other area, displaced um, uh, Delta. But it's just, there's still some hospital capacity that is left over, or lack of capacity that's left over from uh, from the Delta wave in our case.
1: I can comment on what's happened in Ontario, which is quite interesting. Um, most of most of the folks coming to ICU here are unvaccinated. Um, among vaccinated individuals, uh, it's it's basically 100% Omicron. Um, and 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 in fact, in the population as a whole, Omicron has displaced Delta. It looks like Omicron may may um, boost people against Delta. There's sort of this heterologous boosting. So 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 it's kind of made uh, Delta mostly go extinct. What we do still have, though, is among unvaccinated individuals, the split in the ICU is something like, although it's going down, has been something like um, uh, 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 80-20. So, you know, Delta is still around a little bit, and it makes people a lot sicker than Omicron does. So when you're unvaccinated and you're susceptible to either and you haven't been infected before, we're still seeing Delta in that population. But I I, I think this is transient. I mean, I think what Omicron is going to do is it's just so damn infectious that... so, So this is something that sounds very optimistic and happy, and I don't want to be accused of that. But in as much as a pandemic is a process that reflects widespread susceptibility to a new pathogen, Omicron ends the pandemic. Because by the time this wave ends... I think in Canada, everybody has immune experience with SARS-CoV-2, whether it's from being vaccinated or from being infected. So that, I think, is going to change the landscape, but I don't think we, we have to look forward to this being an endemic disease, and I don't think endemic means what people think it means. My, my mental model for endemic is actually influenza, which is a disease that has a reproduction number that oscillates through the year and is below 1% in the summer and above one in winter, and we see that as flu season. And I think we're going to be seeing some nasty seasonal COVID waves as our new normal for a while with influenza until we can get sterilizing vaccines and until we can get vaccines for little kids a la measles, which I don't think is on the horizon. So so, so, so I, do think, I do think we're approaching the end of the pandemic as this all-consuming, all all-encompassing, front-page news every day thing. I think we have a new endemic, nasty pathogen that's going to be part of our our new landscape. And for that reason, just to circle back to what Anne said, which is so correct, is we need to start talking about how this stuff spreads because there is a lot we can do. We can start to protect businesses. We can start to restore confidence. We can make people feel safe in hospitals. But we need to acknowledge that this is an aerosol-transmitted disease, and we need to start doing things differently. Just as 150 years ago, people realized, wow, drinking water with poop in it can make you sick. We need to filter out the poop and add chlorine to the water, and then people won't die of typhoid every summer. We need to make that leap now with, with air, and that's that. That's about infrastructure, but it's also about cultural change within, within medicine, within our own profession
0: since this conversation is for the general public, um, could you could we take one second and could you give me a one-line definition of epidemic, endemic, and pandemic? Because I noticed those words just seem to float in and yeah. out of headlines with no context. So I'm
1: a little bit of a propeller head and, and, and I do this stuff You know, I model this stuff, and I think of it very much kind of mechanistically, how does it look in an infectious disease model on a computer? And the way you make this transition from epidemic to endemic is an epidemic is when you have a reproduction number that's greater than one. That means each old case is making more than one new case before it gets better. And that's the infectious version of a forest fire, right? The more you have, the more you get. The bigger the fire gets, the faster it spreads. That's when your reproduction number is below one, is, is above one, and just as with a forest fire, it contains the seeds of its own destruction. So when it burns through all the fuel, burns through all the susceptibility, that's when the epidemic starts to end. Now, endemic. Uh, what, what you'll see typically with with epidemics is they'll overshoot. So you'll have a, a, a lot of population immunity, but that can be transient and it will be transient with coronaviruses. So people will lose immunity over time. And when you get um, a critical fraction of susceptible people again, you can have another epidemic. It won't be a pandemic. It won't be, you know, not everyone in the population is susceptible, but it's enough to cause a wave. And so, so the, the, strictly speaking, endemic means that you have something that's sitting at you know, a level where the reproduction number is one. Each old case makes one new case. Each old case replaces itself before it gets better. And disease incidence doesn't go up or down. What we see with most communicable diseases is they're seasonal. And that's because you can have a reproduction number that's below one in the summer, but that gets juiced in the winter by seasonal conditions, by being indoors, by temperature, by humidity changes, and so on and so forth. So, so, so that's my version of endemic. Is that this, as 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 did 1918, 1919 influenza? You know, they had some bad flu years in the early 1920s. There wasn't a bright line where you know the pandemic suddenly, you know, sort of like got to stop using so many wily e. coyote analogies. But you know, wily e. coyotes sort are of, you know fires off a rocket sled and hits the side of a mesa and slides down. It's not, that's not how the pandemic ends. It doesn't sort of stop and, and draw right? It's going to transition into something that in the 1920s was bad flu years in the early 1920s. There's no bright line that says the pandemic ended here. 1922 was a bad flu year that had nothing to do with the pandemic. It was the same virus. And I think that's probably what the next number of years hold for us is nasty wintertime seasonal waves, but not the same kind of all all-encompassing, all-consuming page one news every day. That's the, what the, the pandemic is. That's my best bet. I've been wrong repeatedly throughout the pandemic, so I'll just <laughs> caveat him <laughs> just, um, okay,
3: just to add, that's my Just to add, Michelle, it's not just um, infectious disease, right? So, BC, we have. Uh, uh, an opioid uh, epidemic as well, right? So the same language uh, can apply there. And I just want to add a, just to counterbalance, I'm not sure that we're that Omicron is going to make us closer to the end of the pandemic. So I just want to give a counter narrative. Um, so I'm with Dr. Smart. If we don't uh, vaccinate the globe, we will get another uh, variant. So we got it, uh, BC got the P1 variant, which is gamma from Brazil, unmitigated um, uh, infections with mutations. Uh, We got Delta, um, India, and now South Africa. And until we vaccinate the world, we're just another variant away. And in, in my mind, we haven't changed the narrative enough. And and I think what South Africa, the situation South Africa showed us is the importance of addressing particularly people that are uh, immune suppressed because of the ability for the virus to change. It's almost like people that are immune suppressed become a petri petri dish and are able to really um, have a virus within themselves that mutate. And then suddenly, there's, there's no lineage that matched the previous virus. And we saw the first case of that in um, Harvard about a year ago. And now it looks like this is what's happened. So vaccinating the world is our only way to get out of this.
0: That brings me to um, a thought that I had sort of around the continued changes to the testing, tracing and isolating practices throughout the country. I mean, we were so fortunate that South Africa was doing as much sequencing as they were. Um, That was a huge um, advantageous opportunity for the rest of the globe, to start to prepare for something that was so immune evasive, especially when it was believed that the majority of the population had already been previously infected with other variants. Um, And I oftentimes feel like we squandered that gift. Um, I watch in this amazement of folks that I know in various scientists in science communities and the uh, extreme amount of progress and development and innovation and just amazing things that have happened over the last two years. But as a human, I often just sit here and I think, why aren't we using it? Um, So a question to all of you, what are we really missing right now from our national response so that if something else does develop somewhere else that is related, or even here that is related, that we don't have to go through another massive tsunami again? To everyone, that is my question.
5: I I think, Michelle, that there's, there's probably nothing in particular that we can do that would necessarily stop it being a tsunami, because it depends very much on on what the characteristics of the virus are in terms of the mutations. Uh, What we can do potentially though is, again, uh, as uh, Lynn was pointing out, we we need to uh, vaccinate significantly more of our population. If we look at Alberta, we've got 73% of the population adequately vaccinated. Um, Some other close provinces are are, are similar. And so we, we need to move forward with vaccination not just of the world, but of Canadians as well, and one hopes that sometime soon we may be able to get an effective vaccine for those under five. I think the other thing we need to do is continue to, to test because if we're not testing, we won't actually recognize when the next mutation comes in.
1: If I could. If I could make a, just a quick comment, uh, and uh, not not to be too much of a Pollyanna, but I, I think we're in a much better place across Canada in terms of microbial surveillance on, on two fronts in particular. I know sequencing uh, capacity has really ramped up in the country, and even though we're perhaps not doing as much as, as we might want to do, it is expensive and time-consuming, And we're in a very different place than we were in two years ago. I think that's really important for COVID. And it's also important for a whole bunch of other communicable diseases that haven't gone away. It's sort of, I tell students when we do sequencing, when we sequence microbes, it's like putting on glasses. It often completely changes how you see what's happening. The other thing that I think has been transformational has been the use of wastewater surveillance, which we were not doing in Canada prior to the pandemic. It's not just a technology that's useful for COVID, though it's been incredibly useful for COVID, particularly in uh, remote and uh, isolated communities, but really throughout the, throughout the country. I mean, Peel and Ottawa uh, are two very big urban centers in 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 um, in uh, Ontario, where you can really see what's happening in the population by what's in the wastewater. But this has potential applications to emerging infectious diseases. There's a lab at Dow. I know that, that thinks they've shown that, that that Omicron was actually here much earlier than than we think it was, based on wastewater signals. And 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 I think this has potential applications to other infectious diseases, future pandemic threats, as well as influenza surveillance and other kinds of surveillance. So I think you know I think it, it's been a very stressful couple of years, and we're, I think I, I mean I don't want to speak for others. I'm exhausted, but I. Also um, also think that we have grown uh, uh, capacity in some really important areas in the country. I think the other thing that we really need to build on is you know, GFIN went away. Canada was a leader in digital disease detection, global surveillance, and GFIN went away. And I'm sure there's a story there with Public Health Agency of Canada before the pandemic. And we need to reestablish digital disease detection. So we've got an ear to the door in terms of what's going on around the world because the internet is actually a very powerful source of epidemiologic information and can, can, can uh, identify threats for us in, in pretty much real time.
0: I, oh, please,
4: yes. I might add that as we were saying earlier, one thing I think we're missing is the fact that putting our eggs all in the same basket, even for vaccination, which is essential and very thick layer of the cheese model, every measure has its holes. So all along, if we still go only with one thing and put them all the time in the same, we'll, I guess, always have failures. It's time to learn to use different layers of measures so they can cover up for each holes that they have, as we talked about air quality, masking, global equity for vaccination, testing, tracing. So we really have to put this all together and see it as as a whole instead of different things. Dr. Smart.
2: Yeah, I, d- I really agree. I think you know, as we've sort of alluded to before, some of our mistakes I think as when we've gone so all or nothing in our communication, right? It's it's very clear that this illness requires layers of protection, and it also requires the ability to pivot when things are changing. And I think that's where we've seen some of our our political leaders struggle. You know, when, when things start getting worse again, no one really wants that. So they're slow to respond, maybe slow to bring back public health strategies as mitigation strategy because they know that's not really what people want to hear. But then we're wait, sometimes waiting until the healthcare systems are already becoming overwhelmed before we pivot or change things. And then we're always sort of chasing our tail. So I, I think we have to be, you know, clear in our communication with the public. I think we also have to be more clear in, in what our goalposts are. That's also not always uh, super clear in the communication and what are we aiming for what are the metrics we're using to make decisions Um, and I think that swiss cheese model really being clear with the public about that that all those pieces are critical this is not a only one thing works or put all your eggs in this particular basket it is the layers of protection and I think that's been a huge learning from this pandemic I think it will also be something that serves us going forward with other infectious diseases, um, because a lot of the strategies are similar to prevent other respiratory viruses. Um, so I hope that we can you know, continue to learn and, and actually use the things that we've learned rather than seeming to forget them every few months.
0: At Pop Alberta, we um, adapted the Swiss cheese model for very, very large volumes of snow and cold weather. Um, Chad, our technician, is going to pull that up for us. Um, So where we took this naked human um, and the fact of the matter is, is that you probably don't want to shovel snow naked. You might maybe for two minutes, but definitely not for too very long. And do you have the second piece of that, Chad, or just the first piece? Well, maybe just the first piece. There's a second page as well that takes through that, you know, basically layers onto the human, um, good ventilation, um, three doses of vaccination, a good quality mask, um, keeping windows open. All of those techniques that we know have been really beneficial learning over the last 21 months. Um, That way, ideally, we can begin to influence that narrative because I think we all know we have learned so much. And as much as there are pieces that are missing, there's no reason why we can't think now about what needs to happen to keep our whole country coast to coast to coast and the globe as safe as possible. Dr. Filiaccio, do you have any um, thoughts on that original question?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think, um, and it's going back to what uh, Dr. Smart says, said about moving collectively. Um, a, a lot of, certainly in BC, has been top-down decision-making And it's been analogous to telling and not listening, and not listening to the lived experience, the teachers that know how to keep their classroom safe, uh, listening to long-term care uh, residents and uh, relatives of residents and the operators, the things that need to happen. So it's very much doing to, as opposed to doing with. Um, Same thing in the north, right? How can you isolate if you're living in a multi-generational housing? So I believe our style of leadership has to be more collaborative, both provincially, but also across the country. you see suddenly that Public Health Canada and the scientific table of uh, Dr. Mona Namir was already, um, uh, uh, already had a document on aerosol transmission back in the summer of 2020. Why was that not disseminated? Why was that not? uh said more loudly and and i think part of our problem goes back to what is our purpose so we're letting the political response drive um a health response so politicians have a four-year time frame it's about being re-elected we in bc had an election during the pandemic so I think it's going back to what what are a little bit like in quality improvement, what is our, our aim? What are we driving to and having that conversation and letting the voice tell us what they need and what they want, as opposed to making assumption, which is what I see as happen in BC, unfortunately. I'll shut down here.
0: I think two of the components that have come up as things that will unfortunately be lasting impacts are the effects for some folks with long COVID as well as the crisis that is occurring in, for me as a Canadian, one of my biggest prides and joys of our country, which is our healthcare system. Um, in terms of the the burnout and the fatigue, but also in terms of postponements, lack of screenings, all of those things that we've talked about. And often in some jurisdictions anyway, there becomes that conversation around privatization and whether or not that will help us moving Forward to create imaginary capacity, which again I question is space without humans um, to operate said space. Um, but on that, we are going to take a couple minutes and talk about that with Dr. Gibney. And then we are going to take a couple minutes and talk about long COVID um, as well. And then I would love your guys' concluding thoughts after that is done. Dr. Gibney, I'm going to turn things over to you and I'm going to pop. Our friends back into the lower land. Thank you so very much. We have your presentation ready.
5: Thank you very much. Uh, I think, as, as everyone knows, uh, after the Second World War ended, and and uh, Winston Churchill was uh, in the process of being one of the individuals setting up the United Nations, he famously said, that "One should never let a good crisis go to waste." And and I think that. The individuals in Canada who are have always been particularly interested in developing private healthcare uh, and private hospitals in particular have taken the opportunity to comment on our hospital capacity and and these are three recent in the last days uh, articles one was in the National Post why is our hospital capacity so easily overwhelmed by the COVID pandemic. And then in Bloomberg, uh, the US is open as Canada shuts down. What's the difference? Their health systems. And then the Toronto Star commenting that we've cheaped out on the hospital beds and COVID shows that must stop. And I think to, to, to one extent, if this was indeed to, to try and advocate for better uh, healthcare systems, that would be great. But I suspect that that's not the only motive that we're, we're seeing. Uh, next slide, please. Just to put it in perspective, we, we really are in difficulty in terms of our acute care hospital beds per thousand population. And you can see that this is from the OECD. And, and we're very much at the bottom of the pile of, of these developed countries. And But to another extent, it didn't happen by chance. We've been cutting our hospital capacity for the last 20 years right across the country. And so we've done this to ourselves because we've, we've always been told we're too expensive, we have too many beds and you're going to have to move things into the community. Next slide, please. And as a consequence of uh, cutting our, uh, our beds, we actually, of the OECD, we have the highest occupancy rate and percentage of acute care hospital beds as of 2019, uh, followed by Israel, Ireland, and, and then it, it moves down from there. So it, this, this is, 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 again, it's a self-inflicted injury. Next slide. And if we get to the ICU issue, which has certainly been brought to the fore with the pandemic, and, and look at ICU beds per 100,000 population. Again, we're in, in the lower quadrant of these developed countries. Uh, similar to Australia, um, uh, Netherlands, Ireland is, is, is at the bottom of the pile here. And, and certainly you can see why, if, if we have a pandemic or a significant event that requires ICU support, Uh, countries like Canada potentially are going to be hit more uh, severely, and that is why, for example, Australia adopted a COVID zero approach because they knew that they couldn't cope if they had a major wave. Next slide. And if we look within the country at ICU beds by province uh, per 100,000 population, you can see, again, there's a very broad spread. Uh, with Newfoundland uh, at the top of the pile and British Columbia at the bottom, and, and getting this information is actually extraordinarily difficult because if you go to Kaihai, uh, we we get uh, a report of spaces as as we were commenting on without people. And they they are there ICU beds. This this basically is funded staffed ICU beds from a, a study in 2015. Uh, next slide. The other casualty in in, in terms of uh, COVID with respect to our hospital system is the delayed surgeries. And uh, here we have uh, Dr. Smart uh, commenting a couple of days ago as well. And and this, this I think has been made worse by our poor capacity and certainly will need a significant improvement as we move forward if we want to catch up on these at any point in time. Next slide. And so the the, the question that is, is is implicit in in a lot of what we're seeing in in the media. So is private healthcare the solution? In fact, some of of, of the pundits throughout are saying, well, private healthcare is the solution. Next slide. And if we look at COVID nineteen mortality rate per million population, despite our capacity issues, Canada has actually done quite well. We're still in the bottom quarter, but this is the quarter that you really want to be in. Uh, we have eight hundred odd. Cases per uh, deaths per million population, as compared with the states, and and again many of these uh, right wing pundits are glorifying the United States healthcare system, which really has had one of the highest mortality rates uh, during the pandemic. Next slide. One of the things that certainly we've always been told by our politicians is that we spend too much on health. This is from the OECD, 2019. Canada is absolutely in the middle of the developed countries. And we spent approximately 10, 11% as against the USA at 16%. And so we're we're very much where we should be. Now, again, I suspect we could spend our money better, but certainly we, we need to spend it by actually providing some capacity back into the system. Next slide. One of the the issues is, if we look at the conclusions, well, we did better than the states and many other developed countries, many of whom have private systems. Our capacity limitations have contributed to our backlog of surgical procedures. And and the major issue isn't space. Space is an issue, but it's really staffing and and it's it's, uh, qualified, experienced staff. At a time, on the other hand, when healthcare professionals are leaving our hospitals, our acute care hospitals and our ICUs at an unprecedented rate. So if we were to open private hospitals, all we would do is move individuals, healthcare pr- professionals, from the public system into the private system that would basically skim off all the easy surgical cases, leaving the public hospitals without staff to actually look after the six patients. The other thing I think that individuals who are pushing for private health, and, and if we're, even if we're not pushing for private health and we actually want to increase capacity, we have to understand that it takes four years of study to create a nurse that is not that experienced, and nine to 10 years to train a rookie intensives. Construction of new hospitals and expansion of the existing ones takes many years, anywhere from six to 10 years And so whatever we're planning to do, we need to decide what we want to do. We need to do it now and we need to start planning in advance. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Gibney. I'm going to bring up Dr. Um, Dara to talk a little bit about long COVID because I I know it's one of those things that we really do need to have the preparing for now. Um, One of the reasons why... This won't just all go away once we hit the other side of this current tsunami. Thank you so very much for being with us today. We will bring up your slide.
4: Thank you. Oh, the form has changed, so you can go to the next slide. So I'll try and make it fast. As so you see, of course, I'm very concerned with long covid which is sort of still an umbrella with different group of patients having sequelae, complications sequelae, and long COVID as post-viral syndrome. And with decades of negligence on research on the post-viral illnesses, we've sort of had a late start on that. And we really need to start building on what's known and build on long COVID to help all the post-viral illnesses. So you can see that there are many symptoms, many faces that can come from long COVID and classification still under work. Next. One thing that's very important is to finally bring long COVID as a part of the pandemic equation. Because everyone infected is at risk including Young, Fifth and Healthy, just as I was before. And there's still many studies with varied methodologies and definitions. Numbers are still all uncertain, but you can see conservative estimates from various studies down there. And closing to 3 million cases in Canada, especially if we count all the ones we've not been able to diagnose, that makes a lot of people. And it's very much too early to see and to know if Omicron is gonna be different, but there's no indication that it's gonna be. And COVID is not a dichotomy between recovery or death. There is something in between that we definitely have to put in the equation and care for. Go to next. So how to prevent well, first step is to avoid infection. And although Omicron is very contagious, and yes, a lot of people will catch it, well, first, it's better not to catch it all at the same time if we're bound to, but there are still many steps we've not taken clearly as air quality and better masking and better understanding of COVID as airborne to prevent having even more infection. And as Dr. Fisman said earlier, getting vaccinated is still one very big layer of the cheese because it diminishes, it reduces the infections, the infection, sorry, the infection risk. And there's also evidence from studies that it will reduce the risk. But unfortunately we know that people who are vaccinated, infected, will still get long COVID. So COVID is airborne. We have to learn and understand and better protect ourselves. And there are things we can do even with Omicron. Thank
0: you. Thank you so very much. That um, is a topic that I know we had a session on in October long COVID Um, but hopefully we will be able to have you back over the next month or so Um, and we can have uh, even more time to spend in depth on that as we have gone over so many things today and I know that it is front of mind for a lot of folks currently experiencing long COVID as well as front of mind for a lot of folks who are currently infected with COVID That way there's some opportunity to deepen their knowledge and understanding. I'm going to bring everybody back into our conversation that we never have enough time for because we never have enough time for these things um, because there is just so much to always unpack. Again, I want to express my extreme thanks to all of you for being with us today and for covering so many broad things. Um, Ideally, we're going to keep these national conversations going. I believe next week we are going to attempt to have one that zones in a little bit more on the Prairie Provinces as um, some folks from Saskatchewan and Manitoba have reached out to us asking if we would spend some time highlighting the situation on the ground there. But before we say goodbye, given how much we have gone over today, it would be fantastic if each of you could leave our viewers at home with a couple of key takeaways. What applies coast to coast to coast and what we can do as individuals, as humans, as community members to continue to keep everybody, including ourselves and those we love, safe. Maybe we'll start with you, um, Dr. Barra, and then go over to Dr. Gibney and then just go down and ideally we will regain Dr. Smart momentarily and we will pop Dr. Smart back in as well.
4: Well, I would just say that Nothing's 100%, but understanding how COVID's transmitted is still giving us ways to protect and not catch the infections. Everyone has to learn and understand so they can protect themselves and their relatives.
5: From my perspective, obviously we've we've talked about the Swiss cheese model to to, to prevent infection, but the other component, based on, on on my discussion, is we need to value our healthcare system. It's a good system; it does need its capacity increased. The healthcare workers need to be valued and uh, kept working. And I think that before anyone makes a decision to move uh, with further private uh, medicine, that we need to carefully consider what we have now and what the consequences of, of such a move could be.
1: Sure. Um, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll uh, suggest that people uh, remain optimistic. We're much closer to the end of this than we are to the beginning. We are all exhausted. Please get vaccinated. Please try to have your, your loved ones get vaccinated. And I think we have to remember, you know, who and what we are as Canadians. Um, we're 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 a decent country uh, we're a country that has a lot of institutions that are based on the the presumption that we care about what happens to one another. and even when we're very tired and very frustrated sometimes with one another, I think it's very important to remember what our what our country is about.
3: And I would add there's some silver lining coming out of the pandemic. I know it's hard to see it right now, but the advances that we are going to be able to make by cleaning the air um, will serve us for forest fires, for um, hospital acquired infections or infections there's a lot of things that were that is going to come out that are are advance our wellness overall as a population in addition to um I think s- some of us have found a lot of community uh, involvement and found their advocacy voice. And I think that's probably just the start um, and we'll be re- ready to pivot for the next one, which will be climate.
2: I'm back, so I guess I get the last, or did you go yet, Dr. Berner? Okay, so I get the last word, lucky me. Um, I'd say a few things. Um, there's no economy without a healthy population there's no healthcare system without human health resources. And I hope that we take this opportunity in front of us which was what no one wanted to really get serious about healthcare in Canada. Um, Our system is a source of national pride but it is long neglected. And we need to really move away from just talking about the system towards really committing to what it's going to take to create a healthcare system to meet the needs of Canadians. Um, And I hope as we continue to find our way through this pandemic and when we do reach the end, because I agree, I think we will get there, uh, that we don't lose sight of where we are right now and what it's going to take to get us to where we need to be to really be able to serve Canadians as they deserve.
0: And that is an excellent note to say goodbye on. Thank you so very much. We will be back next week. And as always, stay, stay safe, Canada. And remember, COVID-19 is airborne. Wear the best mask with the best fit you have access to. And vaccines really do save lives.